What to do, what to do. Rose is displeased. Welcome back to Worst Church Ever, the progressive Christian podcast whose sister saw Titanic in the theater seven times. Seven! That's the same number of times we saw Phantom Menace. But how else were we going to hear Duel of the Fates in 1999? Where were you, Spotify? Rest in peace, Napster. From your ashes, my pissed-off Lars Ulrich impression rose like a frost-tipped phoenix. Did you know that guy grew up being groomed for youth tennis stardom? Andre Agassi does not, to my knowledge, play the drums. Where are we today? Well, we're trying to get to Genesis 15 because I had the idea that I'd use next year's narrative lectionary as a sort of guide for the things we'd talk about here. But the narrative lectionary does a lot of skipping, which is fine, considering it's a three-year cycle that goes back and fills in gaps in successive years. But I am such a freak about context, context, context. So we've gone off the page, so to speak, and into the pages between. In this case, the pages between Genesis 2 and Genesis 15. We stopped with our last regular episode at the end of Genesis 12, where God, Yahweh, curses Pharaoh with horrible diseases because Pharaoh took Abraham's wife as his own wife because Abraham told Pharaoh she was his, Abraham's, sister. Which, it turns out, is actually true. The fact that she's only his half-sister doesn't make it half-gross. I mean, seriously, J-Source, what the hell? We can't really uncover the reasons why the writer of Genesis 12, or the tradition it sprung from, claim that Abraham and Sarah, Mr. and Mrs., are also half-siblings. Gershon Hepner points out that the language Abraham uses to call Sarah his sister very closely parallels the language of the Holiness Code in Leviticus, which express expressly forbids marriage and sex between half-siblings. Hepner also notes a connection between this relationship and the marriage of King David, who always looms large for the J-source, and his half-sister-slash-wife, Abigail. Perhaps the J-source means to justify David's own violation of the law by casting back to Abraham a sort of what's good for the patriarch is good for the king kind of thing. Hepner, a name my autocorrect keeps changing to Helpert, spills even more tea. He says it's possible that the goal is, quote, to imply that Abraham and Sarah were royalty and had an incestuous relationship like royalty in Egypt and Phoenicia. God tells Abraham that Sarah will be the ancestress of kings, and the fact that she is Abraham's sister not only makes her a suitable ancestress of the Israelites because she is a Territe, but also indicates that her union with Abraham parallels the union of royal Egyptian siblings, end quote. We talked a bit last time about the um, hypothesized tension between Judeans returning from the Babylonian exile, also called the Babylonian captivity, in 538 BCE, and the Judeans who never left, and the idea that returning families had lived for eight decades in a socio-religious context that may very well have spurred the creation of the written Torah and been behind its rise to prominence among the Judeans in Babylon. 
These returning families, so the story goes, would have stressed the importance of Torah and the connection of the children of Israel to the Torah's putative author Moses and the climax of his narrative cycle, the revelation of God's name Yahweh on Sinai slash Horeb and the exodus from Egypt. The thematic and psychological connection is clear enough just as the Hebrews of old had been delivered from bondage in Egypt and then returned to the Promised Land, so too were these former expats leaving bondage in a pagan metropole and coming home. The difference, many scholars suggest, between the returning Judeans and the Judeans who never left was that while cut off from their homes, their cultic sites, and their promised land for 80 years, the exiles had answered anxieties of religious and ethnic identity in ways familiar to any group that's ever been cast as strangers in a strange land. What emerges in Babylon, according to many scholars, is nascent Judaism as such, with the exiled Judeans becoming, in effect, the first diaspora community. The non-exiled Judeans, and here Hepner uses the term indigenous, did not have this same relationship with the Torah and the Mosaic tradition. They had never stopped inhabiting the land Yahweh promised to Abraham. And that, not the giving of the divine name and the commandment to Moses, the commandments rather to Moses, and not the exodus from Egypt, or by extension, the contemporary return from Babylon, was the narrative linchpin of their identity. People moving out, people moving in, people being displaced, people fighting over land and justifying their anger, their resentment, their hatred, their fighting, their war, with appeals to the founding myths and mythos of their people, or their faction, or their branch of said people. It's the same old story, and it's a wonder we still call it news. Back to Hepner here, if Abraham and Sarah are royalty, and Abraham's interactions, alliances, and wars with various kings in chapter 14 seem to also be making this narrative claim. And then, on top of that, if the indigenous Judeans traced their lineage and their ongoing presence in Judea back to Abraham and Sarah, and furthermore, the repatriating exiles emphasized instead the Exodus motif and the primacy of Moses and Torah, we can certainly imagine the sort of lived-in tensions that seem to echo even in the final edits, redactions, and syntheses of these stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs. Now, speaking of matriarchs, I want to look back now at this business of Abraham, Sarah, and Pharaoh, a deception which will occur again in chapter 20, but this time with Abimelech, king of Gerar, a long-gone Philistine town, in what today is likely south-central Israel. Now, if you grew up hearing this story in Sunday school, well, God help you. But we're all grown-ups here, and because we're all grown-ups, I want us to consider an interpretation of this sister-slash-wife-slash-patriarch-slash-unwittingly-cursed hegemon, that whole dynamic, offered to us by Karen Gonzalez. Her piece in the January 2019 issue of The Christian Century is called Trafficking Sarah, the Crime of Abraham, Desperate Migrant. Now, I encourage you to go find this piece. It's short. It's, I think, really two pages, um, two columns, two pages, Christian Century, 
Uh, I said it was from January 2019, but now that I'm looking at the PDF that I have access to through my alumni network, it says it was June 5th, 2019. So the citation is January 1st, but the printing seems to be June 5th. So look for the June edition uh, of Christian Century. But here's what one of the things she has to say. And I'm not going to read more than I need to, only because I want to honor the copyrights and so on. But I am going to read a few paragraphs because I think it's important. And I do believe that if you have a free uh, account with JSTOR, you can likely find the entirety of this article on your own. And if I can find links to that, I will post them. Um, so I want to focus now on just a few paragraphs from the center of this piece. But before I do that, I suppose I'll read the introductory sentence. Most of us are not accustomed to thinking of Abraham as an immigrant, let alone a criminal one. However, Genesis introduces us to Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham, just as God is asking him to migrate to the land of Canaan. Now, from the middle of the piece. I'm going to assume that you're familiar at this point with what's gone down between Abraham, Sarah, and Pharaoh, and then what will be happening between Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech. If you're not familiar with the details of those two stories, you can go read them and then come back. But here's what Karen Gonzalez says. Abram does not have permission from the authorities to enter Egypt, but he and his family seek only to find sustenance and a livelihood. They do not intend harm to the people upon whose land they trespass. Out of fear... Abram presents his wife Sarai, later known as Sarah, as his sister when they arrive in Egypt. She is beautiful and apparently desirable. Believing the Egyptians will kill him in order to have Sarah, he acts out of self-interest, using her to protect himself. Tell them you are my sister so that they will treat me well for your sake, and I will survive because of you, he says. Abram prefers to sacrifice Sarai's well-being rather than suffer himself. And indeed, while Sarai is sent to the Pharaoh's household, Abram prospers. Things went well for Abram because of her. He acquired flocks, cattle, male donkeys, men servants, women servants, female donkeys, and camels. In modern terms, we could say that Abram traffics his wife. He receives payment and grows wealthy from her sexual exploitation. He commits fraud by presenting her as his sister, a convenient half-truth. He coerces her into a situation with no way out. This is the very definition of human trafficking. Sarai has no voice in this matter. She is doubly displaced as both an immigrant and a victim of human trafficking. Notably, this will not be the last time Abraham traffics his wife. In Genesis 20, after God makes a covenant with him and changes his name, Abraham enters the, of the, enters the territory of the Philistines, also without with authorization, also without authorization, and repeats these actions. Most Christians forgive Abraham for his transgressions. We understand their placement within God's larger story. We assume that this kind of thing must have happened all the time in the ancient Near East. Yes, Abraham may have made mistakes, but he is still the father of Judeo-Christian faith. The author of Hebrews counts Abraham among the heroes of faith, Quote, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance, Hebrews 11.8, unquote. We know that Abraham broke the law, but we make allowances for his crimes because we consider the mitigating circumstances that brought him to such terrible actions. Now that's the end of the section I'm going to read from Karen Gonzalez. 
you would do well to read the rest of this short piece. She talks about the ways in which we don't extend the same sort of grace and understanding to modern-day Abrams who are seeking asylum, who are fleeing poverty, um, who are entering, <laughs> crossing borders without permission, and who find themselves in terrible situations. One thing she does note that I think is worth saying Research on the link between immigration and criminal behavior shows over and over again that immigrants are less likely than native-born Americans to commit serious crimes or be imprisoned, end quote. That, of course, makes sense, doesn't it? I encourage you to go out and find this piece. The title, again, is Trafficking Sarah, the Crime of Abraham, Desperate Migrant. And to consider these instances in the Abraham cycle in light of what we know today about desperation, about the plight of immigrants, about the way immigrants are received even in our modern, supposedly more civilized times, and about the ways in which women have always been used and abused and exploited. This seems like a good place to stop for today. I hope that you're able to find Karen Gonzalez's piece, and I will try to post links to a royalty-free version um, that doesn't violate any copyright terms and that might be available via JSTOR. Again, if you don't have a JSTOR account, you can make one for free that allows you access to, I want to say, maybe 100 articles a month or something like that. It's, um, it's a great resource. The resource I use is actually uh, a different database that I have access to through uh, my alumni network, as I mentioned earlier, but I also do use JSTOR and it's free and available to everyone. So with all of that said, a uh, special thanks to Karen Gonzalez for bringing that lens to this story, which is one that I had never considered, uh, perhaps one that I am, was not even able to consider before encountering her piece. So thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us for this edition of Worst Church Ever. As I close this podcast out for the day, it's hot outside, the kids are playing with the hose, and... Uh, it's a good day to have privilege in America. I'd ask that you continue to remember all those who do not. Be blessed, be well, and we'll see you again next time. Bye.